Greetings, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea. And this is Valar Reredis. Valar Reredis is a journey through the books for people who have made the journey before. Brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. George R. R. Martin has said before and will say it again, this series was designed to be reread. We're your tour guides on this journey. But even we doing this full time can't catch everything. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So if you're watching live, feel free to submit comments and questions, and you can do so in advance of each weekly episode by joining us on one of our social media outlets. Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack are the main ones. And of course, I want to, as always, give a shout out to the Isle of Faces podcast, aka Joe Buckley's Scraps and Scrolls edition. He does a really good job of trying to place us in the minds of the characters in the moment. That's something he really focuses on and does a great job of it. So if you're looking for that sort of analysis and other great takes, check it out. Same goes for Good Queen Allie over on Tumblr. That's Nina, who's a, who uh, contributes to every episode as well. And you can check out her thoughts more directly by going over there. Of course, you can also join us on Patreon to support us financially and to get extra benefits like scripted episodes early and bonus episodes like our Gagasos episode, like our... What's there some of our other bonus episodes? I'm spacing out. We've got the... Your different verses, certain chapters. Yeah, our verses chapters like the Versus of Dance with Dragons episode, uh, the... What is that? The Kevin Lannister epilogue chapter. And you can also some- get the compilations of... Of uh, all the characters from each book. That's right. In fact, some of you guys got spammed with that this weekend. (laughs) We posted all 18 of them. Was it 18? Uh, I don't know. I think it was like 18 or 20 episodes of the combined Clash of Kings of Valaritas episodes, which are POV by POV rather than the normal reading order. So in other words, all the Arya chapters in a row, all the Tyrion chapters in a row, now, we, if you're a patron, you may be aware that we have a private feed, a podcast feed that runs through the Patreon, uh, Patreon site, and that's where those episodes are hosted. Now, we posted them all at once so that they would be in order on the Patreon feed so that they wouldn't be scattered throughout so they'd all be together this way. Anyway, that's what's up with that. A lot of you who got all those emails this week, that will explain it for you. And the rest of y'all might want to check that out. Patreon.com slash History of Westeros. Four chapters this week, not because these are all very long chapters, right? Mm, Longer chapters than normal, much longer than average. Starting with 
Davos 5. The gang gets a letter from the wall, a.k.a. Are you really going to burn your nephew? Really? John 7. The Thens get kissed by fire, a.k.a. the one where Egret dies. Brand 4. Story time. Nightfort. A.k.a. the gang meets Sam and Gilly. Daenerys 5. Sell me the staff ninja, a.k.a. the one where Jorah gets outed. Now, is he a ninja on the staff? Or is he a ninja of the staff? Stay tuned to find out. Now, George almost certainly did this on purpose, meaning the big, big change of pacing. Long chapters following up the quick-paced insanity of the Red Wedding, which, by the way, gets its name here in our first chapter of the day. Meaning, the phrase, the Red Wedding, appears in the books for the first time. And it actually appears five times in this book in total though it becomes ubiquitous by the time Feast rolls around. That makes sense, right? A term goes viral. It takes a little while for that term to spread around and get widely used. So this is Davos's longest chapter of the book, Bran's longest chapter of the book, John's second longest chapter of the book, and, well, in terms of Danny's, all of hers are long. That's what he said. Part of what makes them long is that they all include reactions to the Red Wedding, minus Danny's chapter, but it does include Bran's chapter. He dreams of it, and then they proceed to discuss what happens to hosts who break guest right via the story of the rat cook. So even when they're not about the Red Wedding, they're about the Red Wedding. The theme of young being slain for the old, i.e. the metaphorical sacrifice, kind of literal sometimes, it's not always so metaphorical. It continues in blatant fashion with, discussion of literal sacrifice in our first chapter today. Continuing throughout, Bran and company, when they meet Sam and Gilly, will also meet a baby that John will later fear for. Also, thanks to Melisandre, literal sacrifices. Danny's chapter has similar vibes, but vastly worse in scale. There's not necessarily prophecy directly in play, but in Marine, children are given to the harpy, i.e. sacrificed metaphorically to the institution of slavery. That's a constant thing over there. But hey, Astapor is an awful lot like hell itself, as we showed. And Marine, well, I guess you could say it's just a different level of hell. The same race that conquered Slaver's Bay built Dragonstone. And what better way to begin today's discussion under the shadow of the notion that power lies where we believe it does. Thanks, Varus than with Melisandre's mistaken beliefs about Stannis. She believes he has all this power, that he's this prophesized hero, but her beliefs are wrong. But not entirely wrong. When the one she's been looking for is way back in the East, closer to where she came from than where she is now, well, then you can see how these things get out of whack a bit. Hopefully, Danny will eventually make it to Dragonstone. She probably will. But Melisandre may uh, still be at the wall by then. Of course, we know she's going there this book. So they're just going to miss each other again. These chapters are about the monarchs to come, or at least those with claims. With Rob dead, his will likely points to John, who has probably an even bigger claim without Rob's interference or doing it all to an even bigger crown. The same one Danny is after. The same one Bran might end up with. Hmm? And Davos, of course, is our window to Stannis, the only one of these four, not at the Wall or Slaver's Bay, but give it time, Stannis is heading there soon, too. This chapter is crucial to that plotline, as it's the one where, well, 
That's why we keep making up our own titles. Davos 5. The gang gets a letter from the wall, a.k.a. Are you really going to burn your nephew? Really? So this is the one where two is not three. Where themes very similar to the Red Wedding's themes are prominent. Not in actuality, of course. People aren't running around stabbing each other and shooting each other with crossbow bolts. But in discussion. There's no slaughter or great transfer of power like there was in the Red Wedding. But they're talking about that. They're talking about paths to power, concepts of it. It's all front and center, but framed very differently. The first line is... For a moment, it seemed as though the king had not heard. I mean, yeah, disbelief at news of the Red Wedding is going to be common, though Stannis is not the sort to be quiet. He sulks and broods, sure, but he's vocal with, with his complaints, usually. I mean, this is the guy that tells people to their faces what he thinks about them or things they've just said on the regular. He doesn't have much of a filter, really. But Davos is astonished as well and thinks the phrase must be cursed now. And he's, and he's going to be rather Stannis-like when he meets them at Wyman Manderley's court in the Dance of Dragons. He'll flat out call them liars to their faces in front of everyone. It's great. He's great. He will also call out Stannis himself in this chapter. Hmm. Not in front of a big crowd of people and much more gently, but he still does it. He argues against his king or something uncomfortably similar. Yeah or force, rather, for something uncomfortably similar in the killing of children. And, well, yeah, at the flaming heart of this, yeah, Walder Frey has just sacrificed a few of his kin and all of his honor, too. Now Stannis is sitting here thinking of doing nearly the same? Well, it's not the same, exactly, though I wouldn't argue with someone who says it is. Melisandre argues this is not for personal gain. That's a big difference. It's to save the world. You can't make that argument about Walder Frey. Even if you argue Walder is doing what he does for his family, there's no doubt Walder's pride is majorly in play, right? Can you say Walder's entire family would be in danger if he didn't pull off the Red Wedding? That staying with Rob was suicide too? No, I don't think you can. You can maybe say that staying with Rob was suicide, but you can't say that he had no way out. If he just simply said, hey, Tywin, I surrender. I'm not going to fight for Rob anymore. What would have happened? Tywin would have accepted his surrender, and that would have been that. They may have given up a hostage, paid some sort of penalty, but they wouldn't be one of the most hated houses of all time because they wouldn't have pulled off any sort of red weddings or any other colored weddings. So that's it, right? They had, Walder Frey did not have to make some violent demonstration in, in order to switch sides. It would have been reasonable just to surrender especially because Rob broke his marriage pact. No one's going to be like, oh my God, the Freys are so evil for bending the knee. No, they had provocation with Rob's broken pact. Similar arguments apply here. One could say Melisandre is wrong about Stannis and the dragon hatching anyway. So while motivations may be different, you're still talking about killing innocents to gain power. Or one innocent, Edric Storm, but still a member of your family to gain power. Or that you could, maybe you can say Stannis only couches his ambition in duty because it's self-serving. Hmm. Personally, I think Stannis is sincere in almost everything he says or does, but a person can be sincerely misguided or sincerely wrong. Bruce Bolton is sincerely cruel. Tywin Lannister is sincerely hypocritical. <laughs> Davos himself just seems to be genuinely sincere. Melisandre is a great example of sincerely misguided, I think, but she's not wrong about everything. Now, let's talk about this for a second, though. 
consider this quote to what we saw with John Ennegrit and the old man captured by the fans who was executed. Quote, If Joffrey should die, what is the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom? Everything, said Davos softly. In both cases, there's an attempt to downplay this person's value, to say, oh, they're just a old man. Oh, they're just a bastard boy. Oh, I'm not calling him by name. If he's not a person, why won't you use his name? You know, things like that. They're still people. Davos understands this keenly. He doesn't draw this line between what person deserves to live and what person doesn't. They're all people. They're all subject to the king's laws. Therefore, it's everything. That is everything. Because if Edric Storm himself personally isn't everything, but he'll, he, he means that Stannis will have crossed that line and there's no going back. You've killed, he will have killed his honor. He will have killed his, his attitude of being a man that stands for justice is gone. You're no longer a man that's justice over everything if you bend the rules even once, especially in a way, especially in a way like this. Now, here's another take though. Mel, according to Melisandre, Edric Storm is dead no matter what. If he's not sacrificed, the world is going to die. So what exactly is there to quibble over? Well, again, Jon Snow wasn't going to kill that old man, and that old man was far more doomed than Edric Storm is, because that old man, the dagger was at his throat. This thing Melisandre is postulating is, are we really sure that Melisandre is right about everything? I mean, we shouldn't be because we know she's wrong about other things. Burning Edric Storm is definitely not going to wake any dragons for stance, but it would be evil. So evil and pointless. That's a huge fail, isn't it? I mean, damn. We can see why John and Davos might get along if they ever get the chance, right? This is them upholding a very, very similar notion of where that line should be, where the line of justice, where that duty of a king falls. Or not just a king, of a decent person. John's not even a king when he does this. He's just being John. I mean, you could say he is a king, <laughs> but he doesn't know it. And, and neither of them, Davos nor John, is willing to give up even one innocent life, even if that life is essentially already lost. Though John was going to leave a grit no matter what, he framed their final dispute around this old man's life. It was their last argument, basically, before her death which comes in the next chapter. So the reason I bring up that is, will this be what causes John, or rather Davos, to split from Stannis? Not Edric, obviously, because he saves Edric. Edric's going to be shipped off next chapter. But of course, I'm thinking of a different, more closely related person to Stannis. And well, Davos doesn't, at first Davos doesn't think he'll even burn Edric. Quote, he will not do it, said Davos. He could not harm his own blood. Lord Renly will be glad to hear this. Renly was a traitor in arms. Edric Storm is innocent of any crime. His grace is a just man. Sala shrugged. We shall be seeing. He's no old man, but Sala is right to be dubious here because this isn't just about Edric, it's about Shireen. Now, Davos is showing his bias a little here. He's letting his devotion to Stannis sway his judgment, but it won't take long before Davos realizes that, okay, Stannis is really going to go through with this. So he, of course, goes through with his plan to 
steal away in the night with Edric Storm and prevent his king from dishonoring himself. Now, also recall that Stannis, rather Sala, is the one who first tells us about the tale of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa. Hmm. So in thinking of Sala as sort of a hmm, micro old man, I don't know, but he's, he's bringing on some important points here. George loves to use this device as people who you wouldn't think would be reliable narrators being the most reliable narrators about certain topics that hardly anyone should be reliable on. George R. Martin is careful to present prophecy to us in a number of ways. Like, yeah, learned men like Marwin the Mage also says prophecy is dangerous. Tormund, of all people, says you shouldn't take the written word too seriously because it's really easy to lie on ink and paper. It's harder to lie in person when people can read your body language and things like that. Now, Salador San, just his way of mocking the wording and the idea that this prophecy should be taken so literally is brilliant. Check this out. Quote, If the red woman brings them to life, the castle will come crashing down, I am thinking. What kind of dragons are full of rooms and stairs and furniture and windows and chimneys and privy shafts? Yeah, so she's talking about waking dragons from stone, right? So that's (laughs) It's meant to be funny, but it cuts to the heart of the problem. Well, again, the flaming heart of the problem. Melisandre may be knowledgeable and possessed of real power. In fact, she definitely is. But that doesn't make her interpretation of prophecy automatically correct. I'm reminded of a joke by the late, great Mitch Hedberg. Oh, you're a chef? Can you farm? (laughs) Melisandre has proven she has power, but she hasn't proven she's any good at interpreting ancient prophecy, right? The stuff with the leeches is all about giving herself credibility so that Stannis will believe her about the stone dragons and these other bigger ticket predictions. The hugely interesting change on reread, though, is the certainty that Melisandre believes this herself. That's something that was in the fog when people read the first time. There was a wide range of opinions back in the day before Melisandre had her own POV chapter. There was people thinking she's outright lying for dark purposes or that she's lying for a good cause. Seeing inside her head changed so much. She certainly believes she's fighting for a good cause. That's a very important thing. We're also aware that she's mistaken about even more than we first thought from seeing inside her head. Which brings us back to Salador San. He's poking fun at the wording of Wake Dragons from Stone because it's a call out on Melisandre's assumptions. What Melisandre is basing her beliefs on could have been based on someone else's lies or someone else's misunderstandings, or it could be a mistranslation. These ancient powers are not so easy to comprehend or understand. You'd think, given all the uncertainty of ancient prophecy, of things written down, recorded in other languages thousands of years ago, you wouldn't have zealous confidence in one particular interpretation out of literally dozens or hundreds of possible interpretations. Yet, that's what we get. And this, by the way, is a call-out of interpretations of real-world religious texts with people who seem awfully confident in their interpretation of ancient religious texts or any ancient text, really. And it's all about power, though, isn't it? Claiming that you are the one that has the answers with regards to ancient learning, ancient powers, Gives you enormous authority if people believe you. If people believe the power lies with you or in those texts. Again, comes back to Varus's riddle. 
echoes of the Red Wedding are present in all this too with framing of power. Stannis laments how weak he is. This is all building up to a discussion of power by various people in this chapter. He talks about traditional military strength, though, when he frames his weakness. He doesn't have men. He doesn't have ships. He doesn't have gold. He doesn't look good in that regard. Selyse says, but hey, a sign would show the realm you have power. Melisandre talks about real dragons. Well, that would obviously give him power. Davos reminds him, though, that justice is power. Justice matters. If you sacrifice justice, you've lost that power. If you sacrifice Edric, you're no longer a just man. Davos himself is proof of this concept. Davos' devotion to Stannis stems from Stannis' devotion to justice. Stannis himself doesn't fully grasp what power he has in that. He's starting to come around on it. Stannis laments that men will only follow him because they fear him, and he doesn't have the kind of charisma that people like Robert and Renly had. He's right that he doesn't have their charisma. That's true. But he's wrong that that's the only reason that men followed them. No one followed Robert because he was a just and fair man. But people do follow Stannis because he's a just and fair man. Well, they perceive it that way. The rising of Stannis from the ashes, soon to come, to again become a player in the game, comes in large part because he changes his philosophy, his attitude on where power lies in the first place. Because Stannis is also clever, and that also gives power. He realizes that riding to the wall, or will soon realize, heading to the wall, being the king people want, being the guy that rises to the occasion, doing what a king should do, that gives him power. Being what people want him to be, being the model of a good king, will absolutely win him followers and does win him followers. So he's changing what shadow he casts on the wall by becoming something else. And that enables people, again, looking at Varys' riddle, to look at him in different light. And in that different light, they now choose to follow him. And of course, Davos is at the heart of all this as well. Davos is the one that guides him this way. Davos isn't a power broker, but protecting Edric and encouraging Stannis to go north is so amazing because it's strategically beneficial and ethically commendable, which again leads to new followers. Had he burned Edric, He wouldn't have gotten any dragons, and he would have lost followers. And Stannis, you can tell Stannis kind of knows that this is the wrong route to go. Quote, His very name is a roaring in my ears and a dark cloud upon my soul. Give the boy to me and you need never hear his name spoken again, Melisandre promised. No, but you'll hear him screaming when she burns him. Stannis still dreams of Renly's tent. So Davos is more right than that even. He'd never forget it. Stannis nor Davos. That screaming would haunt him forever. Stannis is stoic. He's not a sociopath. He's like the example of Ned and Bran, bravery in the face of fear. But that doesn't mean you don't feel the fear. It doesn't mean you're, it's not inside you. You're just managing it. Stannis would never forget it. And like he won't forget his own daughter's burning if it goes that way. And he says his name is a dark cloud because, like I said, he knows this is wrong. Stannis is not an evil man. He's being led towards evil and he's resisting. He's making all kinds of excuses for reasons he won't do it. Like two is not three. He won't say Edric's name. He's just, he says, um, yeah, let go of me, woman. You know, he does all these things to 
he doesn't want to accept this, but he's looking for a way out. It's almost like Davos senses this. However, without Davos, the dark side of things is that Edric probably does get burned. Stannis probably gives in to Melisandre's urgings, and especially with Axel and Solis and other people echoing her, adding their voices, and only Davos saying no. So if you take Davos out of the equation, there's nobody saying no. Nobody close to him anyway. But that's the thing. You can't just separate Stannis and Davos, can you? Stannis is in part who he is because he's willing to listen to people like Davos. That's because Stannis values the straight, unvarnished truth, which reminds us of this is an undeniable merit of Stannis's. Many others in Stannis's place might have gone along with the burning because there never would have been a Davos Seaworth in place to argue against it, because they never would have hired, promoted someone like that. So that's something uniquely Stannis. It, which makes him so interesting. His grayness is not the typical sort of grayness. Most people, when you say they're gray, it's because they're an average of some good and some bad, but the goods aren't incredibly good and the bads aren't incredibly bad. That's what's wild to me about Stannis is he's an average of insanely good and insanely bad. <laughs> it's just like the extremes on opposite. There's not a lot in between. Uh, his his good deeds are are phenomenal. His bad deeds are, oh yeah, just don't even think about doing that, Stannis. And it's perfect to me that of all the people to hold the attitude, good deeds don't wipe out the bad. It's a man who most is a reason why you can't have that attitude. You can't ignore the bad acts of, of certain people, even if their good acts are incredible. But he's also who he is in part because he listens to Melisandre, right? And Solis and Axel Florin. He's, he doesn't, he could just as easily tell them all to, to piss off and go away forever. He doesn't have to listen to Melisandre. He doesn't have to listen to Solis, even though she's his wife. He ignores her half the time anyway. What's ignoring her about, what's, what's ignoring her about this also? What would that really make a difference? So you gotta, that's part of what I'm getting at here or explaining here is that Stannis is a good man because he listens to Davos. But him, he listens to people that he maybe shouldn't listen to also. Anyway, Axel and Solis don't have a huge amount of influence, though. Even though they're there adding their voices, it is mostly Melisandre. She's the one that's really moving him. Just as I were to say, take Davos out of the equation, Edric Storm burns. Take Melisandre out of the equation, and Solis and Axel Florent never, never on their own would have been enough to convince Davos or convince Stannis to do it. So again, we, we come back to our proverbial angel one shoulder, devil on the other shoulder. <laughs> As an aside, I wonder, because Melisandre is so big about the burnings, and she, she's maybe she's probably had visions of these burnings. I wonder if that's her making them come true. She wants to, like, like some of the other things, she's trying to make these visions come true. And given that she's probably seeing Daenerys instead of Stannis, well, maybe that's what she's seeing. She's seeing the need for this great leader to, to burn people because that's what's happening in her visions. But Daenerys is the one who's going to burn people. Maybe. I mean, probably. <laughs> the difference is whether it'll be intentional, accidental, or both, and when, and all the different circumstances. We'll just have to wait and see. But the point being, if Melisandre has these visions of a savior burning people, that would make her both non more nonchalant about it all because she sees it as just, well, this is the price that has to be paid to save humanity. And in her worldview, sacrificing a few lives to save humanity is a small price to pay. You kind of see her point. 
even though she's clearly wrong about the mechanics of it. And that leads us to another point. We're, we've been misled because Melisandre, about a lot of things, really, be, about Relorism, because Melisandre is the first one we meet who's a big Relor worshiper. Technically, we meet Thoros first, but we don't really get to know him until later. Melisandre is the first one we get to know. So we start to get the impression that her beliefs are a little more common. And he does things, George, I mean, does things to keep that misdirection going. For example, he has Makoro sit there and watch while Victarion burns seven slave girls as an offering. But if you look closely, Makoro never suggests or even mentions such a thing. He just is like, all right, this is what you want to do. Go for it, man. He doesn't, the point is it was entirely Victarion's idea as far as we can tell. Thoros never talks about burning everyone, anyone, let alone doing it. Tyrion with Jorah, they pass the Red Temple in Volantis with the high priest Benero giving a speech. It's a fiery sermon about Azor Ahai and eternal life and endless summer and, and things like that. There's no mention of burning people. Nor is there, you know, like a spot staked out for such. Like, let's do another burning right here. You know, like they're out front of the largest red temple in the world and the subject isn't mentioned or raised. Point is... It, it seems to be very much a Melisandre thing, not a Relorism thing. So be clear on that. Burnings of people, that's her. That's not Relor. It seems like it would fit with their religion, you know, fire and all that. But as far as we can tell, there is no evidence it goes beyond Melisandre, which is a pretty, pretty damn big deal. So speaking of having a sincere but dark outlook on the world like Melisandre's, and with talk of the other kings and queens and deaths of other kings and queens in this chapter, there's a nod to one of the new players here. A certain Lysene pirate once told me that a good spiller stays out of sight, Davos replied carefully. Black sails, muffled oars, and a crew that knows how to hold their tongues. The Lyseni laughed. A crew with no tongues is even better. Big, strong mutes who cannot read or write. Hello, Euron. <laughs> that's Salador San talking, but that's exactly who he's describing. Especially if you throw in those black sails mentioned by Davos, that is very much Euron. I wonder if Salador San's fleet will ever have any encounters with Euron's or the like, but I think there's a more important inference here. Since this is the chapter that Davos reads the desperate letter from Maester Aemon sent a while back, this chapter and that reference will look a lot different and more predictive if it turns out to be Euron is the one to bring down the wall. <sighs> Remember, too, that one of Melisandre's visions is what she thinks is a pending attack on Eastwatch by the sea. But it's popular in the fandom to theorize that what she's actually seeing is Euron's attack on Old Town based on the description. Check out our Euron episode for more on that. Shireen has always been a tragic figure. And it's awfully striking to see her and her cousin Edric and Devin, Davos's son, learning the histories of kings together. This is a really sad moment. You got these three kids and children are, right? They're supposed to be the future. They're the most precious resource in any family, any kingdom, any anything. Kids are the most precious. And these aren't just random kids. This is Davos's son, Stannis's daughter, and Stannis's you know, nephew, bastard nephew, Edric. And this is sad because take all these three kids. Edric is threatened with burning. Shireen probably will be burned and Devin probably will be 
used to make more shadow babies because he's in love with Melisandre. So all it's just a really bad sign for Stannis's reign, even though he's this incredible character that that calls up all these really deep and interesting conversations about philosoph- uh, philosophy and right and wrong. And I mean, this is basically the trolley problem here. If you guys have ever seen The Good Place, obviously the trolley problem <laughs> predates The Good Place, but... I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a, a really, another, a, a great example of, of a piece of media diving deep into the trolley problem, but actually mentioning it specifically. Of course, no one mentions it by name here in A Song of Ice and Fire because what the hell is a trolley <laughs> to the people of Westeros? But this is really what it is. It's, well, is it right to kill one person to save everyone else? But... Of course, it's the, the framing is the problem. That's always the problem. If Stannis is willing to go through with this, maybe he should consider sacrificing himself. But I'm getting off topic. I'm getting off my place here. I'm talking about these kids. And if you're willing to sacrifice the kids, well, it's like what Ed Davos said. It's everything. It's not just your justice that you're giving up. It's giving up the thing that matters most about human life, about the, the reason to save humanity. If you're, you're going to sacrifice the children to save humanity, then what humanity is there left? And I mean that in both ways. I mean that in the metaphorical sense of humanity. You've lost your humanity if you're killing children. And literally, what good are what good is the human race without kids? It's really sad to, and striking on a re, on a reread to see these kids piled in here together like this. They're supposed to be the future, and they're being discussed as sacrifices in different ways and different means. This is the double whammy the way it's presented because what these kids are being taught here, they're having a history lesson. And what are they learning about? First off, Daron the Young Dragon, who I just reminded you last episode, is the Red Wedding parallel for Rob Stark. Daron's death in a parlay, his whole career is a parallel to Rob Stark, the young dragon, the young wolf. I don't need to explain that all again. When George inserts historical anecdotes into these chapters, they mean something, often something important, or at least something cool and usually always cool. Well, at least that. So when you are reading The Winds of Winter and The Dream of Spring, when, when there's historical examples thrown in there, pay attention. And you and by listening to this show and doing your own research you are going to be more prepared than most. But the second notable example, rather than just Daron the Young Dragon, is Ryan Redwine. And he's an example among examples because there are other names thrown out in this chapter, but I think these are the two that matter most. He was a phenomenal and long-lived knight who was the greatest of his day and rose to be Lord Commander of the Kingsguard and then later Hand to the King. And in that, he was a huge failure. He's just another chef who can't farm. <laughs> In this chapter, it's mentioned by Maester Pylos to comfort Davos, saying, look, you can't tell who's going to be a good hand to the king by who was a good knight, which is a strong call to Barristan Selmy, who will be revealed a mere three chapters from now, an incredible knight who was Lord Commander and eventually hand to the queen. And he's not terribly suited for that job. He himself doesn't think he's suited for that job. He laments being in a role that is very unsuited to him, And, well, can't we very easily see him being replaced by Tyrion? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So this call out to Ryan Redwine is very likely a a nod to Barristan's arc as well. So an idea we explore more fully in a recent episode called A White Cloak Turned is Still White, which features Barristan Selmy and Kristen Cole. 
And Brendan Beefish. And Brendan Beefish. You're right. Yes. Not of the, he's not a Kingsguard member, but he is a fine, fine fellow. <laughs> we can say that a message prominent throughout the series is particularly powerful in this chapter, which is stated here kind of obliquely about the free folk. Quote. All in all, they seemed men like any other men. Some fair, some foul. Men are men, Maester Pylos agreed. Exactly. And even the best of us will fail at jobs we're unsuited for. Even Brian Redwine, being the greatest knight of his era, can fail at being hand to the king because he's not, he's not suited for that job. And just as Davos thinks he's not suited for being hand, actually, he's really, really good at it. And he's exactly the kind of man Stannis needs. Because the best of us can be led astray from our moral centering. Now, and I'm not even saying Stannis is the best of us, but even the best of us can be led astray from our moral centering. So if the best of us can, then Stannis can too. But Davos is there to help. One last twist, though. Let's not forget, I've, as I've been saying all along, as I keep giving the caveat, Melisandre's wrong about this, except, except, except. Melisandre is wrong about so much, except the biggest thing of all. She's got so many details wrong, so many people wrong, so many figures misidentified. But the bottom line, that the great white cold is coming. She's wrong about how to stop winter. Who is meant to stop winter? But winter is coming. It's, it's another thing along the lines of how the, the pious believe and act is that they leap on the news of the Red Wedding to show that it backs up their arguments about Melisandre and burning Edric and all that. It's not evidence, but Melisandre, because she set it up in the way she did to show, hey, look, the leeches, that it's going to look like evidence because, well, that's how con artists work. Even though she's not, even though she's sincere, it's still a con job. So this line, no man is as cursed as the kinslayer in the eyes of gods and men. Of course, that's a distraction because, well, who's a kinslayer here? Well, obviously, Stannis would be if he kills Edric. He's not going to kill Edric, though. He might later kill Shireen. So then who are they talking about? Well, they're talking about Tyrion. This is a Tyrion nod. Now, he, Davos isn't arguing with Stannis. He doesn't think Stannis is evil for considering this. He puts himself in Stannis' place and understands that Stannis has a very difficult decision to make. He sympathizes with the difficulty of this decision, even though Davos is 110% sure which side of this Stannis should take. He understands and sympathizes with the difficulty of the decision, and that really helps him treat the situation with the gravity that it needs because Stannis' pride is important too, and he can't override that. He has to present this properly. He knows his king well. And this is another point about Davos, is Davos is very humble. And that's part of why he has these thoughts about, well, I have to worry about Stannis' pride. And he doesn't worry about his own pride at all. And that comes up again in this chapter because, as Joe Buckley points out, learning to read amongst children, that takes a lot of humility. They're all better than him. He's really not very good at it. Learning to read when you're an adult apparently is very difficult. Most of us would never have no idea what that's like. But apparently it's super, super hard. It's best to learn when you're really, really young. And Davos is, is having difficulty with very basic words. And putting yourself out there like that in front of kids is 
Again, that's a great sign of his humility. He knows what needs to be done. He knows it needs to be done. It doesn't matter that it's a little embarrassing or, or makes him feel small to do it. It needs to be done. That's it, period. So it gets done. A great take from Nina. Stannis very briefly mentions being at court as a child. This is, while this is happening, Mel, this, is, this is framed as while Melisandre, Solis, and Axel are trying to tell him, look, all you need is a drag. All you need to do is kill this one child and you get a dragon. And, and Stannis is remembering the dragon skulls. He's thinking about being at court. He's thinking about seeing Tywin and being impressed by Tywin. And because King Aerys wasn't around <laughs> when he was a boy, Tywin was the one sitting on the throne. And he was like, wow, this is an impressive man. Now, this is very subtle framing because Tywin, would Tywin hesitate to execute some kid to gain power? No because he doesn't have the same ethics that it's, it's holding Stannis back. And he certainly doesn't have any Davoses arguing not to do that sort of thing. There's no one anywhere, anything, anything close to Davos around Tywin Lannister giving him advice. That's pretty interesting to see that you have this similar framing that Stannis is relating to his childhood and thinking about where power lies from a very young age. Nina, two questions, what visions are Melisandre is seeing? In other words, what exactly is she seeing in the flames that makes her think that Edric's sacrifice will create dragons? We know that she thinks the result will be dragon hatching. But what exactly is she seeing? Like, is she seeing something that looks like Danny's pyre? Or is she seeing something else? Some, one of the other dragon hatching attempts from the past, maybe. One of the failed ones, like maybe Summerhall, probably not because, you know, she would be seeing green fire. But still, you wonder the specifics of the vision and why it leads her to, these, to the results that she expects. Nina thinks, and I definitely agree, that the difference in part with the dragon hatching scheme for Daenerys was her willingness to go in the fire herself. Yeah, George calls it a miracle, a one-time thing. However, none of the others jumped into the fire themselves. Ares was kind of willing to be a part of it. Arian, bright flame, drank wildfire, but he didn't think it would kill him. The point being, sacrifice. If you're going to sacrifice, do it yourself. If you believe sacrifice is necessary, if you have that conviction, then you should be the sacrifice. Yeah? And that might be the difference. Danny did have that, sac that conviction her beliefs. She did believe that she needed to jump into the flames, unlike all the others. So that's a very important distinction. I like that a lot. Great take. Another small, barely noticeable, there's so much going on in this chapter. Stannis envisions a king with a burning crown turning to ash. This is possibly very early foreshadowing for Aegon VI. We've, we've all obviously entertained the idea of him winning the throne only to have King's Landing blow up around him, perhaps because of the wildfire caches or, or what have you. And so that could be the way Aegon VI, a.k.a. Young Griff, dies. He's the only king that seems to be faced with a possible burning death that I, that I know of. I mean, Stannis, we don't know how Stannis is going to die, but I don't think he's going to burn to death. That would be kind of fitting in a way, given he burned some other people. Still, I don't think that's it. I think, that, I think Aegon VI is a more likely call here. So 
Very nice to see that uh, foreshadowed here early on. Another very small mention is Dad, when Davos is thinking of being a, a younger smuggler when he wasn't a captain, when he served on the Cobble Cat with Roro Uhoris, he meant, there's a mention of them going north to trade for obsidian. It's not the only thing. It's mentioned alongside other trade goods, but they traded weapons to the wildlings and got obsidian in return, which, well, that's pretty interesting to know that there's more obsidian to be had uh, beyond the wall there. I wonder about Patchface. We have more to say about Patchface later, but I'm definitely entertaining the possibility that the reason Melisandre thinks he's creepy and scary and violent is that he's going to come for her, meaning Melisandre, and the reason being that Patchface will want revenge for her burning Shireen. There's all these theories about Patchface, and a lot of them are, are grand and epic, and I think maybe we need to maybe just keep it simple. If pa- because Patchface here is described by Davos as like a faithful hound to Shireen. And what would a faithful hound do if its master was attacked? He would attack, and well, specifically in Melisandre's visions, Patchface has bloody lips, like blood around his mouth. Yeah, faithful hound, yeah, well, he doesn't have a sword. He might go to biting. I don't know. But I feel like Patchface will be, Davos won't be the only one upset if Shireen gets burned and Patchface will be right there, most likely. Newt Rock 4-4 says, if you do this, Your Grace, you will lose the trait just and gain the trait arbitrary. (laughs) That is a Crusader Kings 2 reference. We do our Crusader Kings 2 streams during quarantine. They're Wednesdays and Fridays. Normally, they're just Fridays. And that is a trait that characters can acquire, the just trait. And I agree that if Stannis had gone through with this, he would have lost that trait. Good call. And that does it for Davos 5, a very big, important chapter. And now we move on to a chapter with related themes, ideas that will become more related farther down the line. John 7, the Thens get kissed by fire, aka the one where a grit dies. Pretty brilliant how George lined up this attack by the Thens and company on the wall, only for most of them to be burned alive right after a chapter discussing burning alive Stannis' nephew, right before a chapter at a different Night's Watch castle. Yeah, maybe most of them weren't burned alive. A lot of them were. Some of them were crushed. Some of them both. But that's not really an important detail, is it? The plot lines are even more intertwined, given that Stannis will, of course, show up here, in part because of his, this business of not burning his nephew, but Davos won't be there because he'll be searching for John's brother or John's cousin, <laughs> Rickon. And John will be in need of resurrection from Lady of Fire herself, Melisandre. So with all this fire talk, why not start the chapter with this theme too? They woke to the smoke of Molestown burning. Ice and fire themes abound in this one. It's, it's often a theme with John anyway, given his parentage, his heritage. But Egrit from the far north, fiery disposition and hair to match, right? A battle beneath a great wall of ice where the determining factor is fire. And fire leads us into it as well, as we see in the opening quote, the Thens uh, burn quite a few of them. And the Thens are interesting because they're, uh, they're, it's kind of a reverse here. You've got the, the Thens are the heavily armored, well-prepared ones. And whereas the Night's Watch are bringing out old men and boys physically, uh, the physically unfit or barely physically fit, 
common people helping out, moles, town workers, even a couple of sex workers shooting crossbows, and they're all led by a one-armed blacksmith. So it's a real hodgepodge. But hey, at least Donald Noy is a blacksmith from Storm's End. He's seen action and he's seen good leadership, at least often enough to know what's expected. And you got to admit, well, you don't have to admit, it's easy to, to, to agree that Donald Noy does a fantastic job with what little they have here. John, of course, himself, not terribly fit for hand-to-hand combat, but he can at least shoot a bow. Quote, Noy rubbed the bristle on his chin. Might be, you'll do. We'll put you on a tower with a longbow, but if you bloody well fall off, don't come crying to me. And with him is a former sex worker, Satin, who eventually becomes John's personal steward and deaf Dick Follard. House Follard is a crownland's house. We even see one of them among Stannis' men when they come to the wall, Perkin Follard. But those two don't get to meet or re-meet if they knew each other before because deaf Dick dies in this battle. He falls off the tower and doesn't come crying to anyone. He very notably falls silently, possibly shot by Ygritte. And Ygritte must have been killed not long after because she's found near the same area. Most of the Thens are on the stairs and killed by the Great Fire Trap, but Ygritte never made it that far. In death, Ygritte herself is a symbol of ice and fire. He found Ygritte sprawled across a patch of old snow beneath the Lord Commander's tower with an arrow between her breasts. The ice crystals had settled over her face and in the moonlight, it looked as though she wore a glittering silver mask. Was this Nissa Nissa foreshadowing? Daenerys foreshadowing? The glittering silver makes me think of Danny for sure. Her silver hair, etc. And a death blow to the chest. That sounds like Nissa Nissa a bit, given all the other things that sound make great into a bit of a Nissa Nissa thing and Danny potentially even more so? Or is it the opposite? We've been on the lookout for reasons or clues for John killing Danny, but this might be a clue to the opposite. John is relieved that he does not have to kill a grit. He did not kill her. If he had stayed with her, maybe they would have both lived, but it was not his arrow that did it. You could maybe argue his betrayal killed her, or maybe she would have died anyway. But the point here about Danny is that maybe it won't be John because, well, it wasn't him that killed a grit. Joe points out some really interesting bits here as well. The, the whole caught off guard versus prepared inversion. It's neat to me that the, the warriors of the Night's Watch went to a place beyond the wall, prepared for a battle, and were still caught massively off guard. Here, the Fens sneak over the wall and they lose the element of surprise, yet they still attack and are still caught in a trap. <laughs> so it's kind of like a neat little inversion. But Joe also points out this is a really different style of battle. It's a really, there's no fanfare. There's no battle lines. It's a real, real scrum. There's no, it's very chaotic. And it's at a castle that's not, meant to be defended from the South. It's not defended by warriors. It's not defended using specific standard war tactics. It's really a plan put together by stewards, burning the stairs. It's a desperation play. And well, Joe says it's kind of like a fantasy version of Home Alone. 
I wonder too, though. I think it's very, very much, and this is honestly occurring to me right here in the middle of this episode. This is not in our notes. It's a bit like the children breaking the arm of Dorn or flooding the neck. It's especially breaking the arm of Dorn, though, because that was, it's a destruction of the pathway from one continent to another. And by destroying the stair, the Thens are like first men because they're wearing bronze armor and they very much represent the type of first men that were the children were keeping out of Westeros by blowing up the arm in the first place. So that's pretty cool. That's very a nice little parallel there. <clears throat> and it also shows how the, the people, the, the wall defenders on this side are very much the children in this example of, of the parallel to the broken arm of Dorne because they're technologically inferior. They don't have, they're smaller. They're not nearly as good at hand-to-hand combat. They're, there's fewer of them. And well, yeah, it lines up very well. This might be, this might be something to uh, explore a little further since like I said, I'm having this thought in the middle of the episode. Further research is needed. Interesting too, it's easy for us to forget about Arya here because we know she's fine. First time readers are like, wait, was she just, did she just have her head chopped open by Sandor or someone else? But we, it's easy for us to forget about that because we know for darn sure she's, she's fine. But it's, so that's kind of why it's important here though that John thinks about her. Stick her with the pointy end. Uh, he, she thinks of that or he thinks of the pointy end conversation. And uh, that's meant probably at the time, if you're a first time reader, that makes you sad. You wonder, oh gosh, what happened to Arya? Damn, I, is she alive? I'm still wondering about that. still up in the air. But for us, it's much easier for that to just kind of go over our heads this time. We're like, yep, that's that cute pointy end line, but doesn't mean a whole lot right now. Joe points out a, a Star Wars reference when Satin says, I got one. I got one in the chest. John calls, get another. <laughs> it's very, it's a lot like, don't get too cocky, kid. You know, <laughs> it's interesting too, how the Fens almost went. They decide they just want to finish off the, the Night's Watch. They go, they want to go up the stairs. They want to kill everyone up that's up there before they finish their mission. If they had just stopped and said, okay, well, we'll kill those men up the top of the wall later and just now open the gate now that they have control over it, they could have, lo- they could have been killed but still accomplished their mission. But they wanted to finish off the enemy before opening the gate and that cost them. Benjen is mentioned here and is talking about the neutrality of the Night's Watch and the defenselessness of the South. This is a really big deal going forward because John is going to maybe not forget this lesson, but he's going to maybe go too far with it. It's certainly going to be a gray area as far as the legality of what transpires with the pink letter and whether Ramsey's threat constitutes bringing the Night's Watch into the quarrels of the realm. Whether being threatened means they have a right to be a part of things or whether they're supposed to continue to maintain neutrality despite being threatened. That's a question for later, but it's being set up here by Benjen's discussions and this this groundwork over the point of the Night's Watch in the first place. John thinks of the free folk Actually, backing up a little, there's also the, uh, Benjen mentions that some of the commanders of different castles on the Night's Watch have even gone to war against each other. I don't know that we'll have time for that 
But that could be being set up as well because we've got castles being repopulated, re-given out, and, and some of them are being maybe given to some of Stannis' people. John's given some of them to the Watch, you know, uh, etc. So we might end up seeing something like that happen uh, down the line. Now, John thinks of the Free Folk trying a hammer and anvil strategy uh, being on both sides of the wall, which is, uh, that's kind of neat because that's the Battle of Redgrass Field. The hammer and the anvil were Baylor Breakspear and his younger brother, Makar, which, and Makar is very much a parallel to Stannis. So the irony here is that Night's Watch will actually sort of be part of a victorious hammer and anvil at, when Stannis does show up, who is, again, kind of like Makar. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the, the anvil won't be Stannis. He'll be the hammer with his army pinning the wildlings against the wall. But, yeah, same difference. Sounds like a comedy routine. <laughs> a couple other points here. Almost everything about this battle can be a reference to something else slightly important. There's a little reference to Eddard 7, A Game of Thrones, where to talk about quotes and being loud. John talks about how a battlefield voice being really important, but this, this harkens back to something said in A Game of Thrones. It was the king's voice that put an end to it. The king's voice and 20 swords. John Aaron had told them that a commander needs a good battlefield voice, and Robert had proved the truth of that on the trident. Another thing this battle reminds me of, in addition to the broken arm, Dorn, this one is in my notes <laughs> it's, that I wrote. It's about it's the field of fire. Smaller, worse equipped, worse trained army overwhelmed by the larger one until the larger one gets incinerated. John is very much playing a sort of egg on the conqueror role here. He's literally standing in the king's tower, raining down death from above with two brothers instead of two sisters. And he's wielding Valyrian steel. Also, the Battle of the Blackwater, a fire trap, you know, people being caught in a wildfire trap, similar enough to the stairs trap here. And it's another, another example where the, the people doing the fire trap have much smaller army uh, or navy in their case. And almost everything we see here is described as a possible way to take Marine two chapters from now. Boiling oil is used here, and it's horrifying. And just the same discussion about boiling oil happens with the Unsullied and Daria. Axes at the gates happening here. There's people pounding down doors with axes. That is discussed as a way to get into Marine. Climbing over the walls, same thing. And then everything is burned along the way as well. Because when Danny approaches Marine, the land has been scoured. All the trees are burned. All the wells poisoned, etc. The Fens, since they lost the element of surprise, as they approach the wall, they're burning everything, like Molestown and all that. Archmaster Emma from our flick chat group had a nice funny take here. John is literally a watcher on the walls in this battle, although he's also shooting arrows, but he's, he's up there, not in the thick of it. He's up on the wall looking down. <laughs> and then his, all the other men who flee up the staircase to the top of the wall, they're also watching up on the walls. <laughs> all right, but we are ready to move on. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 
Brand four. Storytime Night Fork, a.k.a. the gang meets Sam and Gilly. As our youngest POV, it certainly fits that it's his chapters that bring us so many ancient stories that sound like fairy tales, but they aren't fairy tales. It is only another empty castle, Mira Reed said as she gazed across the desolation of rubble, ruins, and weeds. Mm, Wrong you are, Mira. (laughs) It is not only another empty castle. It's a rather ordinary way to start off a very epic chapter. But here's something that a lot of y'all may not realize. This is the last brand chapter until uh, the first few chapters of A Dance with Dragons. So it'll be five to six months of real time before another brand chapter. How about that? Theon has a larger gap, but mm, Theon is not as beloved. Nor do we want to be in Theon's POV right now during torture porn time. Yep. It starts. Speaking of being in his head, of thinking of the dreams he's just had of the Red Wedding, he's scared to speak of them and doesn't. But the chapter speaks of the consequences the old gods lay out for those who violate guest right. And on reread, one knows that those consequences were far more literal than one might have guessed. Or not. Predicting actual cannibalism isn't that crazy in this series because, well, starvation, winter, it's been mentioned already, the Ice River Clan, things like that. And it's a rising theme later in the books. Since you've all read them already, you know that. Bran and Mira and Jojen and Hodor are going to eat some rangers, the ones who mutinied at Craster's Keep, and they're not even going to know that's what they're eating. Ditto, Bran may be eating Jojen. We'll, we'll see about that one. In contrast to the wooden stairs torched in John's last chapter, the night fort is the one, is a castle on the wall where that wouldn't have worked. It's the one castle that the ice stairs are carved directly from the wall itself. So it's ice stairs. The other castle's aren't all wood, but none of them are ice. Some of them have stone instead. So the night fort is kind of unique in that sense, but it's the first castle on the wall. So there's a lot of things unique about it. Again, like John's chapter, we have mention of Benjen. Very brief, but still, it's important that he's mentioned here. And he tells Bran the Night's Watch abandoned the night fort 200 years ago. This is a relevant number as it lets us know that it was unused even well before Bloodraven was Lord Commander. Bloodraven was Lord Commander from about 239 to 252, so 50 to 60 years ago. Bran is uh, disappointed. Benjen doesn't know more about why they left the Night Fort and told tales of it. But Benjen wasn't there for any of that either, let alone Bloodraven. Certainly neither of them were there for the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And this, of course, was the so-called Night's King, not Night King, different from the show. And Night's King does sound a bit like John and Stannis and maybe a few others or others with a capital O. He had been the 13th man to lead the Night's Watch, she said, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, she would add, for all men must know fear. A woman was his downfall, a woman glimpsed from atop the wall with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice. And when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king. And with strange sorceries, 
he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For 13 years they had ruled, night's king and his corpse queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Joramin of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of Night's King had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. Now, we go into greater detail in a Night's King episode from years ago, but, but I'll summarize some of them while adding a few thoughts that may have come along since after that episode. It's a big topic, so that's kind of the point here. The elements are there for Melisandre to be a so-called corpse queen. Her uncertain age and bearing could give her that aspect. She's queenly. She talks about power flowing in no, in, in no small regard from, from the trappings of power. But I think it's more about a queen being queen to a corpse, a resurrected John. I mean, he would be a corpse king and, uh, or a shadow of Stannis, maybe, uh, who has slowly lost his soul to fathering shadow babies, as well as more metaphorical ways of losing his soul by you know, entertaining the notion of burning children. <laughs> Old Nan thinks Night King was a Stark. And mayhaps, she says mayhaps. <laughs> mayhaps. Mm, that's tricky, isn't it? Mayhaps his name was Brandon, she says. Hmm. Because Bran himself is surely another option for Night King parallels, but some parts don't fit so well, like a lover being his downfall. I'm not so sure about Bran having a lover being his downfall. That fits super well for Stannis, though, as Melisandre being his downfall. And it might work for Jon if Daenerys is part of his downfall or... Val, I'm not sure. Grit's not really part of his downfall, but maybe she is because the brothers of the Night's Watch don't trust him because he, a lot of them still think he's a traitor. And part of that is his relationship with Grit. So eh, some of the elements are there. I really like the corpse queen bit as the resurrection of John part because the kiss of life is required to bring him back. So yeah, I don't think John and Melisandre are going to hook up. But I guess it's possible. I don't think it. But the notion that they are a thing could certainly be a rumor given they will have some strong connection if he she brings him back. And if it's required that she has to like kiss him to do it, that rumor will spread and and it'll people always talk about are those two hooking up? So this is the most this is one of the, the most easy rumor to see turning that direction seeing how love or a relationship could be shoehorned into this situation is pretty easy, even without an actual relationship taking place. So, but another thing that makes Stannis seem very Night King-ish is the fact that he's coming to live here. He has chosen the Night Fort as his new seat. He may never even set foot there, but his family is headed over there soon-ish. As far as we know, it's, it's unclear when they're actually going to go they're in no rush to get there. John describes the place as incomplete, not habitable yet. He's got people over there working on it. But just imagine, we've been talking about him a little bit off and on. Imagine Patchface there. You've got all these creepy, creepy stories of things that went wrong at the Night Fort. And it just seems like Patchface could be the next one. <laughs> and then the origin for the next creepy Night Fort story starts with a guy like him. To be clear, and another reason we can't go through all of them, there are eight, eight ancient legends and horror stories we hear of the Night Fort in this one, in this chapter, appropriately told to us as night descends on Bran and company while in an octagonal kitchen. 
<laughs> eight stories, eight-sided kitchen. Yeah. A werewood is growing through the floor, adding to the feel of the scene that the old gods are present. And Bran himself feels this way too, meaning that he feels the old gods are present. By the way, a young werewood is an extremely rare sight. I must again pitch one of our own episodes from the past, the werewood tour episodes. We got two of them. And we bring up the topic of where the youngest werewoods in, in Westeros are as far as we know. So here's a good trivia question to pop on your friends who think they know A Song of Ice and Fire. The seven other legends, apart from Night King, Night King being the eighth legend mentioned at Nightfort. Here they are. The 79 Sentinels, Mad Axe, Brave Danny Flint, King Sherrit calling down his curse on the Andals, the Rat Cook, the thing that came in the night, and Simeon Star-Eyes seeing the Hellhounds fighting, which is a strange one because Simeon Star-Eyes himself doesn't seem to have much to do with the story. He's just there seeing Hellhounds fight. But more on that in a minute. Joe Buckley says when he did a personal read through this chapter last year, it really stuck out to him and he thinks it's his favorite brand chapter overall, be in part because he loves castles. So shout out to Joe's Great Castles of Westeros book. Of course, a guy who's very keyed in on the castles is going to enjoy a chapter focused on the very first castle on the wall, one of the older castles in all of Westeros. Joe also points out RIP the Nightfort Library because there were, they do see the library. There's no books. Shelves and bins are all collapsed. The rats are everywhere. But imagine what would have once been there. I wonder where those books went because the books are, aren't, they wouldn't have been left there. The night fort was abandoned on purpose. They carried all their stuff off to other places. So those books are probably at Castle Black. Actually, and Sam took some rare books from Castle Black back to, the, back to Old Town. So some of the night fort books might be now at the Citadel. Oh, as we keep track of characters, so must we keep track of books. Joe also points out, as far as sequencing, the Night Fort, according to the stories, is a place where all the very worst things that can happen in the North happen. All the taboos are broken there. Guest right, kin slaying, betraying the Night's Watch. So Joe doesn't think it's coincidence that right after our very first example of, well, not first, worst example of taboo breaking, rather, in the Red Wedding, we go to this place where taboos are such a normal part of the backdrop. Speaking of taboos, again, Bran committing his own. Again, he goes into Hodor and tries to take him over, and that's just not good. But I don't have anything new to add to that. We've discussed this at length already, how it's, it's, it's not a good thing, Bran, but he doesn't know better. And, well, well, I guess it's a little Night King-ish. If you want to think about the so-called strange sorceries that the Night King put on the Brothers of the Watch, it's probably a little too tinfoily to think that one person could control the minds of the entire Night's Watch. But we do have precedent for controlling living beings' minds, and this is it. It seems like we're a far cry from that logistically, given that Bran can barely control Hodor, let alone hundreds of stronger minds, but yeah, maybe Bran's powers are going to get even bigger than we would have guessed. Nina also echoes similar thoughts to Joe in some way, looking at the crossover of themes between the different chapters. She points to the 79 Sentinels myth as 
a reference to the Scarecrow Sentinels used in the battle that John had. And because, this, of course, the 79 Sentinels were frozen into the wall, permanently fixed north, they, they obviously are just as useful as the Scarecrow Sentinels. So that's a really good catch. The sex workers in Molestown choosing to fight against the Fens are an inverse of the Danny Flint story. Danny Flint concealed her identity, concealed the fact that she was a girl to get into the Night's Watch to help fight. And then when she was discovered, she was raped and murdered. In this case, these girls are not concealing anything. They're like, hey, let me join and help fight. And they do so. And I don't think we hear more about them, but I guess they killed a few thins. The story of the rat cook and the story of King Sherrod. Why are these people at the wall? Why are they at the night fort? And the reason this is interesting is because the rat cook is a regular king. King or King Sherrod cast down a curse on the Andals from the night fort. Like, what's that all about? <laughs> Why are they all the way up at the wall? Why are they doing... I mean, these sound like the, the sort of thing that's not supposed to happen at the wall. You're not supposed to have kings doing political things at the wall. That's against the, the exact Night's Watch oath we just discussed. But it does feel a bit like what's going on with Stannis. Stannis is kind of trampling over, kind of pushing the watch around a little bit, kind of making them... I mean, he's not violent towards them, but you know he's bullying them a little bit. He's pushing them around somewhat. John's standing up to him. So I don't hear him throwing off any curses at the Andals, but King Sherrod, King Stannis, I don't know. It kind of is similar. There's some things going on there. Also of worth mentioning is Alisanne's time at the Wall during Fire and Blood. This quote here, she goes to Night Fort and says, it is so huge. The men seem dwarfed by it, like mice in a ruined hall, she told Jaharis. And there is a darkness there, a taste in the air. I was so glad to leave that place. So yeah, Alisanne does not like the Night Fort. And well, it seems like just about everyone who goes there feels this way. You wonder what the brothers living there felt like when they actually had to live there. Like, why do we have this place? Can we go? Can we go somewhere else? So that's another little point. It's just clearly everything about this place is dark and evil. And and given that Stannis is going to live there, or at least his family's going to live there, you can see why there's all these theories around him and, and that. And if he burns Shireen, the two popular locations where this would happen would be at Winterfell or at the Night Fort. I don't think it'll be back at Castle Black, but it could be. The other option is that she burns Shireen without Stannis' knowledge in order to bring back John. So, unfortunately for Shireen, all these different versions of this story involve her being burned. It's just a matter of where. <sighs> so, the Black Gate. It is a strange, strange thing, isn't it? Being the oldest castle on the wall, this is certainly relevant to the Black Gate being part of that. I wonder if it's an example of the strange sorceries that are associated with Night King. After all, it was the Stark and the Wildling King who brought him down. The, bro the Brotherhood didn't bring him down from within. So what that says is that the Watch was on his side throughout that stage of the Night King's reign. And well, if you need a, a way to get in and out of the Night Fort, that only loyal brothers can take, well, that's the Black Gate for you. I'm not sure why they would need to keep out free folk. It seems a little strange. Like, the, the regular magic in the wall keeps out you know, cold hands and keeps Alisanne's dragon from passing. So, 
what is the need for this additional level of security that keeps out regular people who aren't brothers? I do not have a good answer. I, I, some of y'all suggested things. Nina and Joe both have some ideas, but they're not a whole lot different from what I've said. There's just, just a lot of confusion. <laughs> it's, it's odd. Having to recite the oath. Mm, yeah. A couple of us noticed how nice it is that, remember Gilly was like, can I stand by the fire? And Sam's like, of course you can stand by the fire. And so while Sam has taken Bran and Hodor and Jojen and Mira and Summer to the Black Gate, Gilly hangs back with the baby and is, just gets to stand by the fire. <laughs> there was a nice fire there and she just gets to hang out there. And it's neat too because it's at a Night's Watch castle. So her first like uninterrupted fire standing indoors is at the night for it. <laughs> Wild. Now, as far as the skin changer stuff, let's get back to that for a minute with Hodor. And not just Hodor, but just skin changing stuff in general, but, but mostly Hodor. Bran tries to go into him again. It's getting a little easier. It's reflexive again this time. It's, it's a fear thing. He's like scared of the sound coming up from the well and wants to go into Hodor and draw his sword to protect himself and his friends. So his instincts are, are noble despite the ethical issues of taking someone else's body from them. But it's not easy for him to do yet. It's easier, but not easy. No, I mean that both ways, both logistically using his powers and, and morally. Early in the chapter, he thinks of how pain drives him out of Summer because Summer got hit by an arrow by one of the fens. But here, it's not pain, it's fear. Quote, A huge black shape heaved itself up into the darkness and lurched toward the moonlight. And the fear rose up in Bran so thick that before he could even think of drawing Hodor's sword the way he'd meant to, he found himself back on the floor again with Hodor roaring, Hodor, 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 as the way he had in the lake tower whenever the lightning flashed. Yeah, it's really important because if Bran is going to be facing down undead and others through skin changer means, he can't be thrown out of whatever animal or being he's in because he's afraid. So this is, it's interesting that more, not just pain can throw off the skin changing, but fear. Fear is more prominent probably as, as something that could be a danger to him if he's going to be hiding in a cave and doing things from afar. Well, that's very relevant to what we have to look forward to in terms of how skin changing works and, and, and logistics behind all of this. So just like Arya Brand seems to have dreamed of Rob's death through his wolf, not directly through himself. That's interesting. It's, it's Summer's dreams that he thinks of this through. He, he feels the pain and he feels Grey Wind. So that is an ongoing side note to the skin changing business, which is that the wolves are connected to each other too. The wolves have this bond. The humans have bonds to the wolves and the humans have bonds, uh, the wolves have bonds to each other. And that's, Hard to explain, but almost undeniably prominent because of how George keeps framing it and showing that this wolf connection is the source of a lot of this information, a lot of these dreams. So, yeah. You wonder, too, what John felt. Uh, he's going to have a symbolic dream about Rob's death in his next chapter. And that's interesting, too, because Ghost is on the wrong side of the wall to him. But we also wonder about Sansa. 
What about Sansa? Lady died so early. Did she feel anything? I mean, she knows about the... She gets told the news pretty quickly. But we don't get her POV until after. So it's tricky. And finally, with regard to the wolves, it's very sad, speaking of the Red Wedding vibes here, that the thing that makes Bran finally trust Sam, he's on, he's on his way to trusting them because, well, he's Sam. He's tr- he seems like a trustworthy guy. He's friendly. He's not dangerous looking. He's, he's with a woman with a baby. They don't seem very dangerous. But the thing that, allow, that makes him finally trust, gets him over the hump, the trust hump, is Summer sniffing Sam and licking his hand. Summer's trust of Sam is a huge moment. And of course, Grey Wind's lack of trust was brushed aside at the Red Wedding when it was in fact the most important signal of all. Now, speaking of the different angle to skin changing, whether or not skin changing applies to cold hands is maybe a philosophical question, but it's certainly Old God's magic-related and the Cold Hands Blood Raven saga takes a definite twist here. Sam tells them that Cold Hands is specifically looking for Bran without saying the name Bran. And he knows this person who, whose name he doesn't say is inside the Night Fort. So Sam doesn't know that Cold Hands wants Bran Stark, but he knows who Bran Stark is. It's kind of like a big realization for Sam as he's looking for this person Cold Hands mentions. And then realizes that, hey, I know you. You're Bran Stark because I've talked to John and he's mentioned you. And these physical characteristics you have are pretty undeniable. So we pointed out Blood Raven's age and the age of the Night Fort. Well, he knows about the Black Gate because Coldhand showed them where it was and refers to it by that name. He's the one who calls it the Black Gate. And that's where Sam follows his lead on using that name. Mira, uh, Mira, <laughs> Nina, not Mira, <laughs> points out that while Bran and Mira marvel at the mention of Cold Hands Elk, Jojen focuses on the ravens. Yeah, what happens is Bran goes elk, Mira goes his elk, and Jojen goes his ravens? It's like a Scooby-Doo moment <laughs> where they all <laughs> react to something and each one is reacting slightly with more emphasis than the last person. The point being, maybe Jojen is like, wait, ravens? Three-eyed crow? What's going on here? Is this a messenger? Is this related? So, yeah, it sticks out to him. And Bran wants to know more. He's asking about cold hands. He's like, is he a green man? Is he this or that? And Sam gives an answer. He wasn't a green man. He wore blacks like a brother of the watch. But he was pale as a white, with hands so cold that at first I was afraid. The whites have blue eyes, though. They don't have tongues or they've forgotten how to use them. Yeah. And that's really interesting too because Cold Hands doesn't have blue eyes. That's a big deal. And Simeon Star Eyes, one of the eight stories told here, has a lot of white slash other vibes because of his blue eyes, his star sapphire eyes. But he does have blue eyes. So thinking of Cold Hands as a Simeon Star Eyes figure doesn't work. And of course, Simeon Star Eyes is in the Night Fort. Cold Hands can't go in the Night Fort because of the magic in the wall. So, hmm. so these stories are close to giving us clues, but some of them raise more mysteries than they answer. So we come back to Benjen. Again, an idea that I've come to uh, like a bit more 
with regards to Benjamin and cold hands, which we know Benjamin is not cold hands. George has definitively said it. I know most of you know that already, but let me restate that here just in case. It doesn't preclude the possibility that George originally planned for Benjamin to be cold hands. In other words, we could be looking at some foreshadowing. We could have had George decide that he was going to have Benjamin be this undead figure. And then as the story expanded, he changed his mind and separated them into different figures. That's entirely possible. And that could explain some of the, maybe not conflicting knowledge around cold hands, but some of the mysteries around cold hands. It would explain a lot. It would explain perhaps, for example, right here, this has nothing to do with Benjamin, but it would explain some of the conundrums about why cold hands wasn't present at the fist or why cold hands only showed up when Sam and Gilly were alone. Well, we talked about how the rest of the brothers wouldn't necessarily react very kindly to an undead ranger, especially in, when they're in a big group. We talked about the fact that the horn is with Sam and Sam might want to, the, the cold hands might be protecting Sam's holding of the horn to make sure that crosses over the wall and isn't kept by the others or captured by the others. On the other hand, let's keep it simple. Cold Hands wants Bran to bring to Blood Raven, and Cold Hands cannot enter the Blackade by himself. It might just be this simple. Cold Hands, through ben Blood Raven, knew ben Bran would be there, and thus Cold Hands goes to grab Sam because he needs someone to open the door for him. And that's really all there is to it. Cold Hands and Blood Raven didn't care about the horn or the baby, or even Sam and Gilly in particular. They just needed someone to open the door to get Bran so they could bring Bran to the cave and go about saving the world. Does this not sound an awful lot like Melisandre and Stannis? Like they, don't, they don't really care about, well, maybe not Stannis, but Melisandre not caring about all these other people because she thinks they're doomed anyway, just focusing on the one boy who matters, the one boy they have to bring to save the world. Yeah, it's very similar conceptually. The details, different. The location's different. Conflict, different. But a lot of these beats are very, very similar, undeniably so. The Black Gate is a very, very clear reference to Lord of the Rings. The Black Gate is a, the way into Mordor. It's a giant, it's a real gate, you know, not a magical. It's funny that Lord of the Rings is high magic and the, the Black Gate in, in Lord of the Rings is a large, large gate, but not really magical. Whereas Song of Ice and Fire does not have very much magic, but here we have a magical door. It just seems a little out of place, not in a bad way. I'm not complaining, but it does. It's very outstanding in that magic doors that talk are not a feature of a Song of Ice and Fire in you know, most places or at all. There's really nothing like it. But this is also perhaps part of the storytelling attitude of this chapter, which is there's homages and references. And let me tell you, the Black Gate reference to Lord of the Rings isn't nearly the only one. There are a ton of references to Lord of the Rings in this chapter, mostly around the minds of Moria. So if you are a Lord of the Rings fan, you'll probably have caught a lot of these already. And if not, well, just bear with us. There's just, just to take a second. First of all, to get into the minds of Moria, they needed a password to get to open the door. So there's a similar reference. The reason they're going through the mines of Moria is because they couldn't pass the icy mountain. They changed their, they were trying to cross over this big icy barrier. They couldn't do it. So instead they went under it. Hmm. Same difference there. Of course, Samwell Tarly is, is a reference in homage to Samwise Gamgee, the faithful 
brave yet not brave person who is a important side character yet also very much a main character. Mira's net that she captures Sam in is a little bit similar to the tentacle monster sitting outside the pool that lives in the pool outside the, the entrance to Moria. Peregrine Took, full of a Took, tosses a stone down into the well, just like Hodor. <laughs> Frodo is stabbed during the conflict with the, the orcs. And, but he is saved by his mithril armor hidden under his coat. Ditto this little much smaller moment where Sam is worried he's been stabbed by Mira's frog spear, but uh, he was protected by his mail. <laughs> the fellowship read of the ring, they are in, trapped in this room inside Moria and they read the last account of the Longbeards who died there besieged by orcs. This is pretty similar to reading about the stories of people or listening about the stories of people who used to live at the Night Fort long, long ago and what drove them away. There's also a very notable reference to a shaft of light in both. Uh, the shaft of light is kind of pointing down into this last room where the Fellowship and the Longbeards had their last refuge, uh, just like there's a shaft of light into this kitchen where Bran and company are hanging out. At the gates of the Mines of Moria are a pair of holly trees, which perhaps is a nod to the weirwood tree growing through the kitchen here. And of course, last but not least, pairing up with the Red Wedding vibes, it's a big deal that while the dwarves and the fellowship are stuck in this room, there's drums. Beating of the drums below. And it's terrifying and ominous. And of course, the drums are a big, big part of the Red Wedding. And, well, there's one other reference, actually. I lied. This one comes in quote form. Back in Winterfell, Sansa had told him that the demons of the dark couldn't touch him if he hid beneath his blanket. So that's a cute little story from Bran's childhood. Well, Bran is still a child. But demons of the dark is a rather over-the-top description of things that happen when you're, you know, sleeping in your bed and you're worried about the monsters under your bed. Demons of the dark is pretty rough. That's the the beast, the creature living in the mines of Moria. The thing that owns it all, basically, is the Balrog, which is a flame demon living in darkness. So I think George was really going off having fun with the Lord of the Rings references. And George is a huge, huge, huge fan of Lord of the Rings. He says he rereads it every few years. So Tubbs1971, great question. When talking about the fear that was coursing through Hodor that drove him back out of the skin-changing attempt. Whose fear is it? Is it Hodor's fear or Bran's fear? Great question. I was just assuming it was Bran's fear, but it could be both. I, I don't think it's only Hodor's fear because Bran was feeling that fear too. That's but it is interesting because you brought up Summer's pain. Yeah. Brought, took him out. Ooh. Okay, great point. Yeah, maybe it's Hodor's fear that drove him out. That's a really good point. Hmm. Good catch. Jaded Redhead says, I love how George has so much respect for wolves versus Tolkien. He used wolves as evil omens. Ha <laughs> good point. Yeah, the wolves are evil in Tolkien's stories. They're ridden by goblins, the war riders they're called, and, and uh, of course, as omens as well, as Jaded Redhead says. But here they're the good guys. They're the ones, they're good omens. You should listen to them. <laughs> Prince of Sunsphere asked a question that another person asked. So it's a good question, I think. Oh, it was Tree Girl. Does the gate only open for Sam because he said his vow before a werewood? I like this. I like this. It's slightly tinfoily, 
but would also feed into our conversation about why Cold Hands was specifically seeking Sam. Because to open the Black Gate apparently needs a brother who can say the vows. But maybe it has to be a brother who said his vows before a werewolf and not one who's just said his vows. Because back in the day when the Night's Watch was formed, no one would have said their vows to the seven. There were no seven in Westeros then. It would have all been vows before Weirwood. So in other words, when the Night Fort was new and the first castle on the wall and when the Black Gate was first built, it would have only been people who said their vows before Weirwoods. So maybe it only functions for those. That would be, by the way, a reason, why, another reason why they would have abandoned the Night Fort because most of them can't use the door <laughs> or the back door. <laughs> so I like that guess a lot. Uh, a couple people also point out the eagle. When Mira climbs up and has a look around, she sees an eagle and waves at it. Is that meant to be Orel the eagle? Yeah, it very well could be. Scouting around, looking what's up. Um, it doesn't have to be, of course. It just It's an eagle. It doesn't have to be Orel. And then nothing seems to come of this. So we really have no way to know ever, but it's, it's worth considering. Also, Tree Girl asks, what was Night King sacrificing? It says in the quote that the brothers found out, people found out Night King was, Night King was sacrificing to the others. What exactly was he sacrificing? Was it children like Craster? That seems to be the most popular guess in the fandom. I prefer that one personally because we don't have, we literally have no other examples of sacrifice. But it could be just people, just the regular old sacrifice that Bran sees in his visions at the end of A Dance of Dragons where they put someone on, they put a body on the a living person on head on the weirwood stump and cut their throat and Bran can taste the blood. Uh, it could be something along those lines because certainly blood sacrifice is a big part of the Old North and it is probably associated with the others, though it may not be exclusively associated with the others. It seems like they're a part of that, whether or not they're the origin of it. Who knows? Another big open question I have that I just really don't have a great answer for is nearly the last line of the chapter here. Or, no, it is the last lines of the chapter here. Quote, the door's upper lip brushed softly against the top of Bran's head and a drop of water fell on him and ran slowly down his nose. It was strangely warm and salty as a tear. Yeah, so here's where I admit it. Like I said, I just don't have a great answer for this. It might be a loss of childhood symbolism. It might the door be... could be sweating all over him. <laughs> Certainly crossing a barrier is a like crossing a river, crossing the wall. These things like are very common in literature to show, you know, transition. I think loss of childhood is my best guess here, but I'm very much open to other people's takes. Definitely weigh in if you have them. Also need to point out, Sam opens this door for them. They go through. They can't come back through that door. There is no way to pass back through that door without a similar type of person, similar type of character, someone who said their vows or so their vows through a heart tree. That's the only way they're getting back through that door. But then again, they may not have to go through back through that door. They could just go straight to the front door of Castle Black's gate, maybe. Yeah, there's other ways in. All right. We've got Daenerys 5. Sell me the Staff Ninja, a.k.a. the one where Jorah gets outed. One of the problems with the longer chapters is that it's harder to make up these names for them. <laughs> because... There's so many things to build the name around. And all, like I said at the beginning of this episode, all of Danny's chapters are long. In addition to the very apparent quality in her chapter, she has quantity as well. 
but not a quantity of chapters. With her fifth chapter in this book, we can finally, by combining these five with the five she had in The Clash of Kings, match the 10 total chapters she had in A Game of Thrones. Speaking of combining two to equal one, the first line of the chapter. Maureen was as large as Astapor and Yunkai combined. This has to be a coincidence, right? Can George really have... Yeah, you can't put anything past this guy. He might have. He might have. We immediately see the Great Pyramid 800 feet high, so 100 feet higher than the wall. For perspective, that's like two and a half Statues of Liberties or 80% of the Eiffel Tower. The real Great Pyramid in Egypt is was 481 feet when it was built. It's now like 455. You know, it's old. It shrank a bit. The real Great Pyramid probably didn't have 163 slave children nailed the post pointing the way, though. This is a bit of a pivotal moment for Danny with regards to her attitudes. She forces herself to look at all these dead children or dying children because some of them weren't even dead yet. And it's like she's trying to take responsibility for each one of them. This is a noble instinct, but maybe going too far. That's an enormous burden to put on yourself when you're already acting. Like, I get it. I get taking on other people's pain and suffering to try to motivate yourself to act. But she's already acting. This seems kind of masochistic. I mean, you don't really need to fire yourself up to stop slavery, right? She's already, it's already so awful and evil. Now, maybe this is a strange thing to criticize, but the reason I bring it up is because Danny just gets so mad later and this drives her so much that maybe it took a little too much of it onto herself. A little too much of this on her shoulders. And Nina says it's, it's this determination to look at the face of each murdered slave child is reminiscent of Arya's determination to remember the names of all the people who committed injustices in her life and deliver justice to each of them. Because that is what Danny's trying to do here. She wants to look on the face of each slave child and say, I'm going to get justice. I couldn't save you, but I will get justice for you. So she's seen horrors done to people and inflicts them in return. And that's part of what drives her. And she's, so she's kind of got an eye for an eye attitude here. This harpy is monstrous. And it sits atop a monster of a pyramid. <laughs> I really like the Statue of Liberty comparison to the great bronze harpy because she's the opposite. They're opposites of each other. One lady stands for freedom from oppression while the other lady stands for freedom for oppressors to oppress. In fact, there's a pretty darn good chance George specifically looked at the Statue of Liberty when designing the harpy of Slaver's Bay. The Statue of Liberty has a lamp meant to be a beacon of freedom. The harpy has, well, lightning and thunderbolt in her talons. So it's kind of a light source, different sort of meaning, but similar concept in reverse. The Statue of Liberty is the Roman goddess Libertas, goddess of liberty frequently a favorite of emancipated slaves in Rome, but also a symbol of the death of tyrants like Julius Caesar and, of course, kings, which the Romans were very much opposed to kings. At the feet of her statue is broken manacles, meaning, la meaning Lady Liberty. So, because the Statue of Liberty was made partly in honor of the abolishment of slavery in the USA. On the harpy's other hand, well, or other talon, Many depictions of the harpy have her holding manacles. So it's the difference between holding manacles and, and having shattered manacles at your feet. And George grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey, 
Bayon, I don't know how to say it. Whatever. It's far, it's not far from the Statue of Liberty. I feel like when we heard him being interviewed, he said like Bayon. Bayon, okay. Though George isn't old enough to remember this part, he may be aware that the Statue of Liberty was originally copper colored. That must have been cool. I wish we had colorized photos of that. It, it turned green kind of quickly. But if George was aware of that, it would make it another parallel to the bronze-colored harpy. Now, Daenerys is about to be named mother by a lot of the Miranese, a lady liberty of sorts in her own right, and she's bearing a lamp lit by dragon flame in a sense. The Statue of Liberty also holds in her other hand, lamp in one hand, in the, uh, in the right hand, wait, is it right hand, left? doesn't matter. In one of her hands, she's holding the U.S. Declaration of Independence. And prior to this chapter, Daenerys declares the independence of all the slaves of Yunkai and is attempting to do the same thing here. So I find myself agreeing with Dario, who says the harpy is a craven beast, which, like her armies, hides behind the walls atop the pyramid. The Statue of Liberty, however, stands out in the harbor of New York City, meant to give welcome, not terrorize. So well, let's say we half agree with Dario, because she then, he then goes on to mock the harpy's woman's heart, which... It doesn't really make sense given the existence of people like Daenerys. Like, Daenerys is a woman's heart, but she's no coward. She's quite the opposite. Let alone Libertas herself, the, the goddess of emancipation and freedom. Her woman's heart is quite strong. Thank you very much. And that brings us to another major recurring theme of the entire series. Perspective. Notice how when Stannis is faced with Storm's End, Davos says, who cares about Storm's End? Just move on. Takes Take King's Landing. That's the one that matters. Stannis says, no. I can't have it said I was defeated. A similar conversation takes place here where Danny's takes are similar to Stannis's takes. And, and of all people, Davos's takes are echoed most closely by the Dothraki and Jorah Mormont. That's interesting. And well, we also have a similar, a parallel to Rob at the Red Wedding. When Rob is handling a variety of different people whose needs are all being confronted to him at once. He evades the problem of Grey Wind's presence and Reynald Westerling's presence by having Reynald Westerling watch over Grey Wind and take him aside. Catelyn calls this deftly done. Well, I think so too in the case of Danny, who deftly chooses Strong Belwas to be the duelist in this fight. Yeah, it was really well, really cleverly done. She's got a lot of people that are like, we got to fight him, we got to fight him. And a lot of people are laying, I want to be the one to fight him. I want to be the one to fight him. But Danny doesn't want to risk any of their lives. But she also listens to Barristan, who she doesn't know is Barristan. His arguments are very persuasive that we want to get, we want to kill this guy. It's important for, for honor and for morale. It's a great choice on her part to satisfy so many people at once while compromising with others. And also figuring out what kind of warrior Strong Belwas is, right? Like, that's important. She needs to know how good he is, if he's as good as he says he is. That way she knows if she can use him again later. And because she doesn't want to move on, like Davos told Stannis to do, she needs a plan to get in. The, plan, the first set of plans aren't great. So while they're debating what to do, they start off with this duel. Yeah, this chapter has the Strong Belwas versus the Hero of Marine duel. It's a great, Great duel. In its own way, it's a warm-up. It's an undercard bout, getting us ready for the mountain versus the viper. Despite his name, Strong Belwas beats Osnak Zopal with exceptional quickness. His strength doesn't seem to have that much to do with it. I mean, I'm sure it helps. 
But it's his quickness, really, that does it. Belwas is a great underdog story here, not in terms of fighting skill, clearly given how easy it is to, to win this fight and how he just lets Osnak cut him once before he kills him. He was pretty in control the whole way. But socially, the disparity is huge. It's pretty satisfying to see this enslaved since birth, abused, traumatized, strong Belwas slay the son of a slaver family. So it's ha- everyone's happy. Well, not the, not the Miranese. It's entertainment for Danny's people. And honestly, I enjoy the reactions of Danny's people more than the fight itself. I, I, it's just kind of neat how they're all brought together like this. Jorah wasn't thrilled about the duel. He was arguing against it. He's a downer. He's like, yeah, even after they win, even after the win, he's like, it's a victory without meaning. We can't win one at a time. But when Belwas walks back over, he's the first one to say, well done. Because, you know, Jorah's a warrior himself and uh, he appreciates the job well done too. Her blood riders wanted the duel for themselves. They almost, and they had argued with Belwas. They called him names. They almost fought with themselves. They wanted to fight this guy so badly. But also, just like Jorah, they're like, they know a good fight when they see one. They're, they're warrior culture guys and they respect a good, a good fight. And there's nothing like a good fight to win the respect of people from a warrior culture. They didn't much like him before, but after that, they're like, all right, he's one of us. On cue, Danny's handmaids offer victory bells, but Belwas has no braids, just hunger. The Unsullied, who have an awful lot in common with Belwas, bang their spears and shields in applause. Brown Ben tosses him a plum. A Brown Ben plum. <laughs> Strong Belwas's desire for liver and onions is made to seem a bit humorous. Like, I want liver and onions. He asked for it before the fight. He's like, okay, where's my liver and onions after the fight? It's a dark reminder that one of the few pleasures available to eunuchs is food. So they often indulge in it. It's brought up. It's why he's got a belly. And this, in fact, is increased by killing. As people like Jamie and Jorah and others have discussed, killing gets the blood up. Surviving battle gets the blood up, as it says. It's, this is when a lot of rapes occur. His baser lusts are fuel. This is one of the reasons to avoid war in the first place, because of this, the... the effect it has on on people's brains. Normally, there would be plenty of women ready to spend some time with Belwas after seeing his victory, and men too. So he wouldn't be alone if he wanted company, but he fills this void with food. And later, Belwas's desire for food is what indirectly leads to him saving Danny's life by eating those poison locusts that were meant for her. But he survived that too. And last we see, he's been recovering his strength and is eager for revenge on, well, he doesn't know who, but he wants to get that revenge. And I'd like to see him get it. It'd be neat if he's one of those unlikely survivors in the end. By the way, <laughs> interesting too how familiar this is to uh, Gregor Clegane. Not that Strong Bellis has a personality at all like that, but you know, a guy who's known for, for being a great warrior and gets poisoned. Doesn't look like he's going to survive, but comes back. Hmm. Anyway. It's, it's funny that we never see either of all the big deals made of Barristan's reveal. Belwes never reacts to it because he, well, he probably knew. <laughs> he was in on it, most likely. Uh, the contrast between Barristan and Jorah here is a big part of this chapter. It's also a classic. It's something we see in, in movies and real life. All the time, you've got the humble, sincere, confident apology versus the, well, Jorah does that thing you should never do when you're supposed to apologize, which is 
not apologize. He starts off with, I told you so. Instead of apologizing, he's like, I told you so. <laughs> he names people he warned her about. He, but he's naming all these people that had nothing to do with the plot against her unborn son. The plot he had everything to do with, or at least a lot to do with. One of the reasons Danny manages to continue to trust Barristan is she knows he could have easily just not fought Miro. Just let Miro kill Danny. And there you go. That's it. So if he wanted her dead, he just had to stand aside. The same is true for Jorah. If Jorah wanted her dead, all he had to do was stand aside when Drogo's blood riders came. He still has permanent damage in his hip from that. So he definitely proved that he would fight to the death for her. So really, he just has to just you say the right things here. His pining for her is a problem, no doubt, but she can handle that. Danny's not exiling him because he's creepy. It's the selling of secrets to her enemies. That's the thing that just she cannot tolerate that. That's treason. Even if it's in the past, it happened. In addition, as Stannis would say, as we just went over, the good act does not wipe out the bad. And Danny has channeled a lot of Stannis in this chapter, or maybe Stannis was channeling Danny. Look at, see it however you like. The point is, He's trying to say, look at all the good I did to wipe out this bad deed. And that's just not going to fly. It's just not. He's already cashed in his existing good deeds by getting to keep his head. I mean, that's normally what happens to traitors. So he can't also say, look, this stuff that is keeping me alive also is a reason to forgive me. But it's not just their disparate apologies. Let's just jump back to the earlier parts of this chapter and how they think in terms of leadership and morale. Jorah's take on Osnax Opal riding back and forth was, who cares? Barristan says, no, this matters a lot. He's giving their people courage and taking away ours, and that matters. So Jorah, again, is missing the powerful emotional element here, just as he misses it when he makes his non-apology. And again, that's really all he had to do. I really think that if he just apologized kind of like Barristan did, she'd have forgiven him. But instead, he just digs the hole deeper, acts like he has nothing to apologize for. He responds to the reveal that he worked against her by saying, yeah, but I love you now. What? Come on, man. That's just making it more awkward and avoiding the point. When you wrong someone, they set the terms for forgiveness. You do not set the terms for forgiveness when you do the wronging. You have to own, and the, almost always, the first step required in forgiveness is owning up to what you did. But Jorah has never, never been able to give Danny what she's wanted. Everything Jorah's ever given Danny has been on his terms and has been towards his goal of them being together. Jorah's telling Danny how to feel here, which is never do that. Never tell someone else how to feel, especially when they're really mad at you. He's a supplicant trying to negotiate here. He's a beggar trying to be a chooser. He just does not realize what a thin rope he's on, what thin ice he's on, and he's just burning it up. Jorah's misunderstanding of the human element is echoed in his misunderstanding of it at the beginning of this chapter. Again, we come back to the man riding back and forth, yelling and taunting. He says that doesn't matter. The truth is it doesn't seem like it should matter, but it does matter. 
It's hard to explain why it matters. And maybe I'm not the best person to do it. But we, you don't have to listen to me. You don't have to listen to anyone other than Barristan Selmy. The 63-ish year old warrior, who, elite warrior and commander, he's an expert in such matters. He's not an expert in a lot of other things. Don't listen to Barristan Selmy when it, when it comes to, say, love and relationships. <laughs> Don't talk to him about what it's like to be a common, like a, a common guy. Don't talk to Barristan Selmy about what it's like to be an unskilled warrior. But this guy knows what morale and troops, and this is his whole life. So when Barristan Selmy says, this is the right way to go, you should listen. Now, of course, we didn't know it was Barristan Selmy. Well, we did. But Danny didn't, and we didn't on our first street, and Jorah didn't. Everything Arston Whitebeard does looks different this time through. So speaking up, next up on the fight card, we kind of skip past it, but let's jump back to Miro versus Arston. The Titans bastard versus Barristan the Bold. Two people in disguise. <laughs> the, the battle of disguised gentlemen. With Dario... Uh, and her sense of invincibility, you know, meaning her love of Dario, her infatuation with him, it's definitely some of her young girl qualities. She herself notes that she has them. She uses them as an, as an advantage sometimes. But sometimes they work against her. And this is maybe an example of that. She's still got that youthful, nothing can touch me kind of attitude. Some of it's, some of it's kind of her destiny sense, you know? It's not just an age thing. But it's similar to Rob and Rob looking past where the real dangers lie. Danny is in danger constantly. She doesn't really seem to quite grasp that at this point. Miro, however, knew it exactly. As, as a big, he's a scumbag, awful man, but he knew exactly what to do here. He knew that, quote, you know, she'd come along the freedmen, she'd come walk amongst the freedmen to soak up some adoration. He knew she'd come there, and he was right. And he knew that she would probably not be well protected. And he was right. So this is a, a kind of a, a thing to consider that evil men like Mero rise to the top of organizations like the Second Sons in part because they are intelligent. He's not a dummy. He's got severe emotional issues. And, you know, his pride is a big issue. And this need for revenge is a flaw. But he's not unintelligent. He is, maybe you can say this is a bit similar to the type of intelligence you'd see in, well, maybe not. Euron's going a bit far because Euron is, is highly intelligent. Maybe the kind of cunning like a Vargo Hote. Vargo Hote is, all, is a great comparison probably. Someone evil and brutal and violent, but fairly intelligent too. Either way, this line here is the reminder, is a good reminder of that overconfidence. Quote, we'll take Arston. I do not mean to leave the camps. She had no enemies among her children. No enemies among her children. Oh, can I also say? Yeah. I just think it's of note that Miro's nickname, the Titan's bastard. Yeah. Sansa is that. Yeah, Rainstone, right. Stone, yeah. Baelish sigil. That's a good point. And he's, he's got red hair too. Miro does. Yeah, I just, anyways, it's, I'm sure it's not significant at all, but I love that. That's pretty cool. And so Miro did hide among her children. So she has enemies among her children when they choose to hide themselves there. And it's a really easy place to hide. He just, you know, it's a, it's a rabble, ragged band. And before that, she was almost killed by a sorrowful man's manticore. In both cases, Arston and his staff ninjury saved the day. And of course, uh, Barristan's staff 
using the other meaning of staff, meaning like council staff, is going to be removing Jorah from the council. In the next chapter, though I suspect Barristan would have won this fight against Miro no matter what, it was over with almost before it started because Miro never took him seriously, got the upper hand quickly because of that. Barrison doesn't have, you know, he's older. He has no apparent deadly weapon at hand. So Miro's like, I don't care about you. Nevertheless, it's a second fight in a row where the large foe goes down to the smaller one. I don't know how big Osnak Zopal was compared to Belwas, but he was on a horse. So in that sense, he was larger. And George actually specifically reminds us of that point, quote, As massive as he was, the eunuch looked small beside the hero on his horse. So even the framing makes it sound like Belwas is lesser, and the other guy's called a hero. So that fits really well. Both of these two duels in the same chapter have a lot of the same vibes where you've got a, a smaller, ignored, kind of looked down on type figure, even though Barrison's in disguise, versus this larger, better armed and equipped figure. And in both cases, it's not close. The, war, the fight isn't close. And in both ca- cases, it seems to be in part because the higher ranked person, the person who thought they had an advantage, took the opponent too lightly. So one can see how this is building up to another particular fight between a large man and a smaller, less encumbered man who knows how to fight men larger than him. Miro isn't wearing armor either. His encumbrance is more metaphorical, meaning he doesn't know who he's up against. His his brain is short (laughs) of the situation. Meanwhile, this is reversed when Oberyn Martell immediately rushes out to the duel and yells, have they told you who I am? But that's, of course, not the only difference. The smaller man wins the first two duels, perhaps as a, con- a subconscious setup for our expectations with regard to Oberyn. He's not only the smaller man, but he's the champion for the quite literal smaller man. Tyrion is meant to die because of Oberyn's loss, just as Danny would have died had Barristan lost. It was not a trial by combat between Miro and Selmy, but it had a lot in common with one since the the end result would have been similar enough. Miro felt that her trick of attacking his men at night while they were drunk wasn't fair. But hey, what do you have to complain about, Miro? You're taking money to keep slavers in business, so you really don't have any moral high ground whatsoever. Even before Miro was killed, he had run off. So at the beginning of the chapter, we see the new leader of the Second Sons Brown Ben Plum. Making him seem amiable enough is part of George's initial goal here. But never forget, this guy is a career sellsword who fought under Miro and other probably terrible men. Uh, Danny isn't attracted to him like she is to Dario, so he's less dangerous in that sense. But otherwise, he's arguably more dangerous than Dario. And this line about Dario may as well be about Ben as well. Quote, The Tairashi sellsword was not a good man. No one needed to tell her that. Under the smiles and the jests, he was dangerous, even cruel. Yeah, just say the, you know, say Brown Ben Plum was not a good man. No one needed to tell her. Just replace the the Dario part with Brown Ben and the line works the same. Georgie decides to use a notably heavy metaphor to describe how we should take Brown Ben Plum's words. It's very common that George frames a new character with some some sort of metaphor that pretty well spells out 
the truth or honor or distinction of this character. In this case, <laughs> it's, it's really more over the top than usual. I love it so much. Ben tells two stories here. One of them is the one about his ancestor's six-foot-long member, but that's not the one I'm referring to. He tells the story of the Miranese sewers and his escape through them. He says his friend Scarb had his liver cut out by this very same hero of Marine, Osnax Opal, because Scarb was leering at some lady friend of his. Now that part's all very believable. Osnax Opal killing someone for looking at his girl, sure, that makes sense. It's the part about Ben running off too that I don't quite understand. Why does Ben have to run off because his friend stared at some lady? What, how is that related at all? Why did, did Osnax, does he incriminated in this crime of staring somehow? I just don't understand why Ben was in danger because of this. So I got to think that maybe Ben's the one that was staring at the lady. <laughs> and uh, he had to run off because he found out Osnax Opal was coming for him. And maybe, maybe Scarb got in his way or something. Or maybe they both were staring at the lady and Scarb just got killed first. So Ben's story stinks. And that's funny because, <clears throat> well, he tells the story of escaping through the sewers. So he, like his story, smells like, yeah. <laughs> so if you agree that this metaphor for his trustworthiness is what's in play here, then note that he also says this, the smell has never left me. <laughs> in other words, this is a guy who's still telling big, big lies. And often, or at least again, we have an example where he's talking about a really stinky, stinky story. Much later, he tells a story about rooting through a bunch of bodies looking for loot. Bunch of dead bodies. And he finds some gold and then his superior officers take it from him. And... <laughs> that story may or may not be true as well. I, I feel like that story is probably also a lie. It's probably him taking the money from some young, naive sellsword recruit. <laughs> it wasn't, he wasn't the one looted. It was him doing the looting. And this makes all his, his funny stories or his dishonest, his smells like a sewer type stories even more ironic because the one about his dragon heritage is probably true, though just not the six-foot member part. So that's just, uh, George is really having a, a go at us all here by having these believable stories probably be the ones that are lies, although they have some truth to them. And this least believable one, because a six-foot member, I mean, what is this, Tormund Giants Bane here? <laughs> that's completely unbelievable, yet the basic truth of that story is, is true. Which is to say, let's talk about that. The story of Viserys Plum. Let's get into a little more detail with that. Basically, the story is Elena Targaryen, who was one of the princesses in the tower. She later, I believe it was her third or fourth husband, was Ossifer Plum. And the joke is that the, the six-foot-long member story comes from the, the rumor that it was actually Aegon the Unworthy who got Elena pregnant and not Ossifer Plum. And the reason for this is that Elena got pregnant uh, more than nine months after Ossifer's death. So Ossifer couldn't have been the one to impregnate her unless he had a six-foot-long member. But of course, the joke is, is six feet under. When you're buried, the joke is your grave is six feet under. So you'd need a six-foot-long member to impregnate 
<laughs> a woman from the grave. That's where that joke comes from. Now, the joke is expanded on in other places. Bloodraven himself, in the disguise of Maynard Plum, jokes that, we're, hey, maybe we're all related to this Viserys if all the rumors are true about Aegon the Unworthy's bastards. <laughs> and indeed, he's joking in part because he is definitely related to this Viserys, assuming he really is a, has the Targaryen heritage. Now, this Brown Ben story seems to confirm that it was Aegon the Unworthy and not Ossifer Plum because the dragon Viserion likes Brown Ben Plum in this scene. And that is thought to be evidence that he really does have that drop of dragon blood. So, but it's not Brown Ben Plum's dragon heritage that matters. It's what it says about other people's heritage. Tyrion himself is going to later mention this Viserys Plum connection, and it may be about him. If the dragons just happen to be friendly to Tyrion in an unusual way, won't that make a lot of us have alarm bells for Tyrion Targaryen go off? It certainly will for me. It may be more likely, though, that this is all about John, that it's a way to recognize John's heritage. Well, yeah. Let's actually take a look at the quote real quick before we go further. Her captains bowed and left her with her handmaids and her dragons. But as Brown Ben was leaving, Viserion spread his pale white wings and flapped lazily at his head. One of the wings buffeted the cell sword in his face. The white dragon landed awkwardly with one foot on the man's head and one on his shoulder, shrieked, and flew off again. He likes you, Ben, said Danny. And well, he might, Brown Ben laughed. I have me a drop of the dragon blood myself, you know. During the Dance of the Dragons, one of the two factions looked for people like Brown Ben Plum, meaning those who had Targaryen heritage or Valyrian heritage and thus the capability to ride dragons. They were called dragon seeds. The dragon seeds had mixed results from capable and loyal to capable and disloyal to incapable and disloyal. Brown Ben's side switching is a nice reflection of that because as we know, he's going to switch sides to the Miranese and if you've read into the T-Wow spoiler chapters, he then switches back. However, when he switches back to Danny, he's notably wearing a purple cloak that seems to turn from light to dark. It's a description of Daenerys' eyes to young Griff's eyes. Who Daenerys' eyes are lighter purple and young Griff's are dark purple. So ben, Brown Ben may switch sides again. Now, not everyone who had Targaryen heritage could tame a dragon. Quentin, hello. And those who did claim dragons weren't 100% certain to actually have that ancestry, like, say, Nettles, who was also a brown-skinned person that rode a dragon, which a lot of people think of Nettles and Brown Ben Plum as a connection, but there isn't necessarily one other than the possibility of Targaryen heritage and similar skin color. So you are saying that Dragons are not racist, like a racist dog. They're like <laughs> proof that they didn't like Quentin or Nettles. <laughs> I, I guess we are saying that. Yeah, so what if Rhaegal just likes John? What if Rhaegal, the green dragon that people most think is associated with John because Rhaegal is named for Rhaegar, what if that dragon just likes John? I mean, that's going to be a dead giveaway, isn't it? But what if Viserion likes Tyrion? Right? What if well, that would be wild, a white dragon. And in the same Winds of Winter chapter where I mentioned Ben's cloak, Tyrion at the end of that chapter picks up a white dragon's side piece 
covered with blood. The blood is so deep into it, Tyrion notes that it's the veins, the blood is seeped into it like veins. So this sounds like something to do with Euron's dragon horn working because of the blood claiming it. You know, you need blood to claim dragons. Or it could be a symbol of Tyrion himself picking up the white dragon because he's going to ride it himself. Or it could be a yet unnamed other person, a dragon seed from for the new era that we that I did that isn't John or Tyrion. If we're going down that route, well, we're getting a little too far off a field for this chapter. But what a big deal to have in this chapter that has so many other things going on. You got the Siege of Marine, you got the, the outing of Jorah and Barristan, you got Dario, you got Belwas, you got so much else happening. But this is the chapter where one of Danny, Danny's dragons like cozies up to someone with a little bit of dragon blood. That is a huge little moment. It's Chekhov's Brown Ben Plum, <laughs> Chekhov's drop of dragon blood. So this, this scene has been cited since this book came out. Since the first time people read this book, people noted this dragon moment with Brown Ben Plum and have had our eyes wide open waiting for this circle to close. Also, in this chapter, speaking of dragon riding and endgame stuff around Daenerys, there's poly- the issue of polygamous marriage raised. You know, Jorah mentions the, had mentioned the possibility of Danny taking two husbands, and Danny thinks of it here. She's thinking of Dario and Jorah together, and then Dario with other people, and blah, blah, blah. Just, it's all just, all these ideas are passing through her head, which is interesting because of Rhaegar. Rhaegar probably did have a polygamous marriage, certainly had a, two women, whether or not he was married to them both is, is another matter, but there's something to it. And then, of course, Magor the Cruel, the uncomfortable comparison to, Daener- to Daenerys, had a bunch of uh, wives, and none of those kids came out like kids or at all. And that is an uncomfortable comparison to Daenerys as well. And a few thoughts from you guys. Lady Leaf Underhill says... It bothered her that the children could still be left alive or taken down, meaning that if any of those children that were taken down before Danny got there, if any of them had still been alive, what did they do with them? Did they have to just put them out of their misery? Yeah. Hmm. I, that wasn't brought up, and maybe it should have been. So, a, a funny spot here for me, rereading personally, I... <laughs> saw the, the, the scene in, on TV when Dario is telling Daenerys about all the different flowers and herbs as they're walking around. I was like, what? where did this come from? This is so random. Even though this is in the, in the books, this is in this chapter that Daenerys is getting told uh, by Dario, like every time they move on to a new area, he would be like, look, this is this flower. This is this herb. I had just forgotten that was actually taken from the text. So, oops, it's kind of cool. Certainly part of Dario winning her over. Comment from Seth410. Danny is going to marry both John and Aegon. Hey, it could happen. It's possible. It's open. The possibilities are there. There is. It's certainly been floated in ways it was not floated on the TV show, the idea of her taking two husbands. And, well, we just saw Stannis have the vision of Aegon being burned to a crisp, which kind of argues against her working with him. On the other hand, I have floated the idea of the Gaiman pale hair example, where Gaiman pale hair was floated as a someone who had dragon blood and was revealed to not have dragon blood, and thus 
was removed from the line of succession because his claim was just vanished. He was no longer a threat, and thus he was allowed to live and was a friend to the king, Aegon III, at that point. So maybe Danny will befriend Aegon after slaying the lie that he's truly a claimant, because he's not very, probably, Rhaegar's son. So if that can be revealed, then there's no need to kill him. But of course, slaying the lie could also just involve slaying him through burning or other means. I think that's more likely. But I do like the possibility of him, her marrying both. And let's be honest, it's maybe not very likely, but both could happen. She could marry them both and Aegon could be burnt to a crisp. I mean, it, it is possible that she could marry them both, not at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, right. But, exactly. You know. Maybe it's even, this would be kind of weird, but she marries John, they have their falling out. And then, then she marries Aegon either before or after divorcing John. Yeah, that seems less likely to me. Yeah, that seems like way too much time. Yeah, it seems like the opposite direction would work better, that she would marry Aegon and then marry John. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that actually, that does make more sense. But we'll see, we'll see. And that does it for today, everybody. Thanks for coming. A few outro notes here, like the next set of chapter titles. Last week, we covered 151 minutes, 24 seconds. This week, 179.39. So far, oh no, I didn't update it. I did not look it up this time. <laughs> it's a big blank spot here. Mm, so I don't know how much we've covered. I'll just update this next time. So you can always check the video length to see how much we edited out for the podcast version if you're listening. Looks like the video version will be about two and a half hours, just short of that. Next time up, Tyrion 7, the one with sex in a skull, a.k.a. the Bachelorette Shay edition. Sansa 4, the one where Sansa finds out, a.k.a. the gang gives glorious gifts to Joffrey. Tyrion 8, the actual purple wedding, a.k.a. the one where Joffrey dies. Sansa 5, Sansa gets on a boat because of the implication, a.k.a. the one where Dantos dies. And Jamie 7, the one with sex by a corpse, a.k.a. the Bachelord Commander, Jamie edition. Something I'll try to do more often in these episodes is we often refer to our scripted episodes uh, for more information because we just, obviously, if we spent two hours on a topic, we can't go that deep into it here in an episode that's two and a half to three hours. So we often, people have asked for links or at least the names of those episodes so they can go further with their, uh, further into those rabbit holes. So in this one, I mentioned Religion and Magic for Night's King. I mentioned the two Werewood episodes and I mentioned the most recent episode called A White Cloak Turned is Still White and that is about Barristan Selmy and Kristen Cole and the Dance of the Dragons and lots of cool stuff with them and like Shea pointed out it features a wonderful guest Jeff Hartline aka Brendan Beefish so check all that out and we'll see you all next week for another instance of Valar Reredis thanks to Ashea, who is the best managing so much at once all together thanks to Joe Buckley Thanks to Nina. Thanks to our History of Westeros mods who post the chapters in our Facebook group every week, leading the discussions while featuring excellent artwork to boot. Thanks. And to join Here Be Dragons. All right. That's right. Forget. 
Always check. Here Be Dragons is always on right after us. So check them out over on, that's the name of the channel, Here Be Dragons. I'm not sure what they're covering today, but they've always got something fun going. Oh God, I knew what they were covering too. It was going to drive me crazy unless I just saw it and everything. You can join the discussion for the next set of chapters or beyond on Flick, Facebook, Slack, or Discord. The links should be available to you in the description of the episode, whether you're watching or listening. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the wonderful help with, uh, for the doing of all his maps, rather. We didn't have much to do with it at all. <laughs> Only a little fact-checking. Look at me trying to take credit for Michael's maps. <laughs> it's Amos analysis. Amos from The Expanse. Oh, very cool. So that's what's here be doing. Here Be Dragons is doing. Yeah. Also, thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reritas music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koal for our regular uh, History of Westeros music. Thanks to our Benjineer for the editing assistance and making our episodes sound a lot better. And last but not least, thanks to you all who support us on Patreon and through other financial means like sending donations through our website. You can do PayPal donations if you don't like Patreon, for example. You are keeping us afloat in these difficult times, and we will continue to churn out the episodes at the same rate as long as we can. So, again, see you all next week. Thanks again. Valar, reread us. <laughs> <laughs>